Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Sanity Sessions. I'm your host, Clint Sabom, and today we've got a very accomplished guest, Beverly Engel, who's appeared on Oprah, Donahue, CNN, Sally Jesse Raphael, various TV programs across the U.S. and Canada. She's written several bestsellers, including the emotionally abusive relationship, the right to innocence and healing your emotional self. She's contributed to magazines like the Chicago Tribune, the Washington Post, the LA Times, Cosmopolitan, and regularly contributes to O Magazine and Psychology Today. And we talk about a lot of good subjects, including self-forgiveness, which is important for everyone, shame, healing from an emotionally abusive relationship, and self-compassion. And I think her expertise is going to come through on this interview. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Beverly, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you here. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's fantastic having you here. I guess for um, listeners that may not be um, familiar with your work, do you want to give a little introduction about yourself? Well, I'm a psychotherapist and I've specialized in working with um, emotional and sexual abuse primarily. Um, I work with both people who were sexually and emotionally abused growing up and people who are being emotionally abused in their current relationships, adult relationships, uh, and people who've been um, sexually assaulted as adults. So kind of have focused on that. And I've written many books on subjects related to healing sexual abuse and healing emotional abuse and female empowerment, books like that. Yeah, yeah, all stuff that I'm very interested in and um, wanted to ask you especially about the importance of self-forgiveness, maybe if you're recovering from abuse or um, or just in general, um, if you could talk a little bit about, about self-forgiveness. Yeah, I think everybody can benefit from self-forgiveness, but people who are who were abused either in childhood and people who are currently being abused, probably most especially, need to really focus on self-forgiveness. Um, it's, it's a primary way to heal your shame. And people who were abused as a, as a child and people who are currently being abused are just overwhelmed with shame. Uh, it's one of their biggest problems. Uh, I have a book coming out next year about how to heal your shame if you, uh, from sexual abuse as a child. Um, so it's very, very important. And um, the way that we, that we can tie in self-forgiveness and shame is that um, if you don't forgive yourself, your shame will compel you to treat yourself and others poorly or even abusively. Um, we tend to take our shame out on ourselves by treating ourselves poorly or letting uh, letting others treat us poorly. And we can become abusive ourselves if we don't heal the shame of abuse. Um, and it affects our self-esteem. Um, you know, forgiving yourself actually is a way to kind of 
give yourself permission to become a better person. If you don't forgive yourself for your past mistakes, you it kind of gets in your way of you becoming a better person today. You know, we we all have regrets and we all feel badly about things we've done in the past. Um, but if we don't forgive ourselves for those things, it actually interferes with our personal growth. Uh, we're more likely to keep repeating abuse patterns if we don't heal that shame. Um, and it can cause us to be self-destructive. Uh, and if we also don't, don't heal our shame, we can become self-defensive. It's like we're so full of shame that we can't even see ourselves clearly. We can't take any criticism whatsoever. Um, we become defensive and we don't see our faults. Um, so there's lots of consequences to not forgiving ourselves. Sure, yeah. And I imagine the more shame you carry, the more difficult it is to validate yourself and maybe even the more you need validation. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. When you have a lot of shame, you just really feel horrible about yourself and you do one of two things. You either internalize that shame and again, it affects your self-esteem. It affects how you treat other people and how you treat yourself. Um, it affects how successful you can be. Uh, when we carry a lot of shame very often, we can't handle success. We can't handle happiness. Um, it's like when good things come our way, we don't think we deserve the good things. And so we push them away in, a, in some way. Like we start an argument with our, our partner. Um, we sabotage our success at work by starting to come in late or starting to have problems with coworkers. So it's amazing how we'll self-sabotage ourselves if we don't feel like we deserve good things. And that all comes from shame. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I'm curious to ask you about is um, emotional abuse, um, because, you know, it seems like with uh, emotional abuse for people who have experienced emotional abuse, that can be a very hard thing to validate because you don't have something specific to point to in the way you might with sexual abuse or physical assault or something like that. Right. Yeah. It's really difficult to explain to anybody what you're, what you're going through when you're emotionally abused. Um, and even more difficult, it's the person who's being emotionally abused often doesn't know that they're being abused. They don't recognize that the treatment they're receiving is abusive. Um, so if somebody's constantly critical, um, very often what happens is the victim takes in the criticism, takes in the negativity. They don't even think, they don't even stop to think, why is this person so critical of me? Or this person has a real problem because they're constantly critical. They tend to assume the person is right. They tend to think, well, maybe I am doing these things. Or they question themselves. And if they were to start talking to a friend, which few of them ever do, but if they were to try talking to a friend or a family member about why they're unhappy, 
they might say, well, you know, my partner's always criticizing me. Well, that kind of sounds so typical that people would say, yeah, well, yeah, my partner criticizes me too. And they won't really get how intense the criticism can be and how constant and how it can become emotionally abusive. Yeah. So, you know, I'm curious to hear more about that. Like, how how would you know when it really is emotional abuse when you're when you're being criticized constantly or is that just generally an emotionally abusive pattern well it generally is an emotionally abusive pattern it's we all tend to be critical and we all tend to be critical of our partner so an occasional comment from your partner about something you haven't done uh something they're not happy with you know, it's never good. We should all work on not being so critical. Um, but an occasional comment is one thing. It's when it becomes constant. And when it's not just about like one aspect of yourself, it tends to be kind of about everything about you. It's about your appearance. It's about the way you parent your children. It's about the fact that, you know, you're always late or you're not a good cook or you're not loving enough or you're not giving them enough sex. It tends to kind of be across the board that they find fault in you. Um, that's one distinction for sure. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, what What are other signs of emotional abuse in a relationship? At, let's say as an adult, you know, in a partnership. Yeah. Well, one really striking one is when your partner put you down in front of others, you know, mm. and often they might do it supposedly with humor, you know, um, like, you know, Sandy thinks she's a great cook, but let's not tell her any different, you know, or, um, you know, I can't believe how often my wife, you know, makes the same mistake over and over, you know, ding dong, ding dong, or, you know, just, um, you know, kind of constant ribbing and constant comments about, you to other people in front of other people that's very humiliating and that's um that's a way for an abusive partner to kind of put you in your place uh and supposedly be doing it with humor but it's very very hurtful and very humiliating so that's a pretty common that's a pretty common one that can be pretty obvious um another is to be dismissive all the time so you're having a conversation and you, you present an idea to your partner and your partner kind of consistently says, oh, no, 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 that's not going to work. Or, oh, no, that's a bad idea. That's stupid. Uh, but to be dismissed constantly by your partner, it, it says to you that your partner doesn't value you. Your partner doesn't value your opinions, um, doesn't maybe think you're very smart, um, doesn't really think that you can add anything to the conversation. And so... It's very, um, it's very debilitating to keep on receiving messages like that. And when you have a success, they will very often diminish that, you know, oh, you're making such a big deal out of winning this essay contest. There were only five other contestants, you know, um, or yeah, you finally finished junior college, big whoop, you know, so what, you know, everybody's finished junior college, you know. Um, so anytime you have a success, especially a major one, they'll find a way to diminish it in some way. Yeah, yeah. 
And, you know, when um, now when getting out of an emotionally abusive relationship, can the process of getting out and being out, you know, maybe uh, seem harder than it was being in it because you got so used to it and you're like a ship without an anchor out, out of it, even though it was a toxic anchor? Yeah. Well, it's not harder, but it can feel that way. And that's why so many people who are in an emotionally abusive relationship have a difficult lot time leaving. Um, they do get kind of acclimated to the abuse and um, the abuse will wear that, wear them down. It just kind of whittles away at their self-esteem. Uh, and so they don't feel very courageous. They don't feel very strong. They don't believe they can really make it on their own. Uh, so it's very difficult for someone to leave an emotionally abusive relationship. Um, but absolutely, you know, once they leave or they're in the midst of planning on leaving, it can be very, very scary. Um, you know, again, they may not feel like they can make it on their own. Emotional abusers are very often, they often threaten that, you know, you, I'm, I won't give you a dime or I'm going to fight you for the custody of our kids. I'm going to take the kids away. Um, you know, you, nobody else is going to want you. You're too ugly. You're too stupid. They'll do that tactic. Um, and very often people who are being emotionally abused, they've been so damaged that they don't think they can make it on their own. And many are afraid of being alone. Um, this is not in any way to blame the victim here, but sometimes there are situations where people who are already feeling pretty passive and, you know, not very sure of themselves, they will get into an, an emotionally abusive relationship because of that. They often get, you know, very attracted to a charismatic person who is very successful and they kind of, you know, identify with that person and feel good about themselves because they got that partner. Um, but they're basically, um, afraid of being by themselves, afraid they can't make it on their own. Um, they probably have become dependent on their partner. So, you know, the fear of being alone or not making it on their own, those are huge fears that can come up when they're trying to leave. Sure. And then, you know, one, once they have left, um, as far as the self-forgiveness piece, yes. um, I'd imagine there needs to be a lot of self-forgiveness for maybe even having been in the relationship in the first place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and they also, they need often need to be forgiving themselves because of the damage the relationship did to their children. They'll feel very guilty and very ashamed when they come to realize how the relationship affected their children. So those two things, yeah, getting into the relationship feeling shame for staying so long, feeling shame because their children had to go through such pain. Uh, so yes, and the main way for, for them to get to a place where they can begin to forgive themselves is through self-understanding. Uh, it's like bright red letters here, self-understanding, if they get nothing else out of this talk. Um, and that basically is to be able to make the connection between the, the behavior they want to forgive themselves for, the, the troublesome behavior, the, embarrass, the embarrassing behavior, and looking back on their past and 
realizing why they acted the way they did. That's what that's the key to self-forgiveness is to make that all important connection, because there's always a reason why somebody does something like if they become addicted to alcohol. Lots of people who are emotionally abused will turn to alcohol as a coping mechanism. You know, I've had so many clients tell me that, you know, they drink all day long just to cope with life or they start drinking when their partner comes home because, you know, that's the only way they can get through the night or they drink with their partner because that's the only way they can cope. Uh, So alcoholism, uh, you know, getting DUIs, having problems with alcohol, uh, going to parties and getting drunk and people seeing them. That's all very, you know, shaming. And it's a common way that that people who are being abused react. And so to understand why did I do that? Why did I drink like that? Well, the obvious thing is that's how you were coping. And that's how you were self-medicating. You know, you were hurting and you felt trapped and there was no way for you to, you didn't feel like there was any way for you to get out. And so you started drinking. It's, it's not excusing the behavior. And especially if your drinking caused other problems, like exposing your children to danger, like a DUI, driving drunk. Um, it's, it's not excusing the behavior, but it's understanding it. It's saying, okay, I was trying to cope with a, with a horrible situation. I was self-medicating because I didn't know any, any other way to get through that. Um, another really common behavior, uh, is to start fighting back, which is, you would think would be a good thing. It would be empowering, but some people get into a really horrible situation where they're, they're yelling at their partner, the partner's yelling at them. Um, you know, they're yelling and fighting in front of the kids, uh, and they feel, they end up feeling a lot of guilt and shame for fighting back. I mean, they had a good reason to fight back initially, but they got into a bad pattern of, you know, an escalating situation of fighting with their partner. Um, So they need to forgive themselves for that, for sure. Uh, And they need to forgive themselves for staying as long as they stayed. And that's where going back in their past would really help. Um, People don't, you know, on the average, a person does not stay in an emotionally abusive relationship unless there's been some history of abuse. Um, that's on the average. There are people who do end up staying even though they had a perfectly wonderful childhood, but I just haven't experienced those people very much. Um, but this is, again, not to blame the victim. But if you come from a household where you observed your father emotionally abusing your mother, it's not too big of a leap for you to figure out that you learned that behavior. You learned how to be passive and how to put up with stuff um, by your mother's example. So that's just a real good example of how some people learn passive behavior uh, from their from observing their parents. Yeah, so the self-understanding comes in with understanding how childhood patterns uh, may have re replayed themselves out to get into Absolutely. a relationship like that in the first place. Absolutely. A lot of women who didn't have a father growing up will be very attractive again. And it's not all abusers are male. There are female abusers. I want to make that point. 
uh, and Thank not you. all <laughs> and not all male abusers are charismatic, charming guys, but often they are. Okay, and you take a woman who doesn't who wasn't raised with a father, who has a real father hunger, and maybe doesn't have a lot of self confidence, and she meets a guy who's really willing to come in to swoop in and take care of her. You know, he may be a little bit older than she, he's more successful, and he acts kind of fatherly, you know, and very seldom do the women actually see it. <laughs> you know, everybody else can see it, um, but she can't see that she's, you know, looking to him to be a father. And he will take over, he'll take charge, he'll tell her what to do with her money, and he'll tell her, you know, what, who, he, who she should see, you know, whether she should see these friends or not. She'll tell her, he'll tell her which family members are, you know, not good for her. He's more than happy to, to dictate to her what her life should be. And she feels good about that at first. It feels like caretaking. It feels like having a father. It, you know, she never had anybody to teach her things. She never had anybody to guide her. And so that guidance can feel really good in the beginning until it's not. <laughs> Right, right. Until it until it turns to criticism and putting down. Right, and until it's overly controlling, you know, it's one thing to advise your partner about money because you are good at it and you know how to handle money, and it's another that your partner can't make even a small purchase without getting your permission. That's another abusive pattern: is to be that controlling. Right, right. To to basically restrict the partner. Right, right. And so going back in childhood, maybe the the woman who or, or man who's being abused grew up with one partner, one parent being overly controlling, you know, controlling everything that the mother did and everything that the children did, you know, and being horribly controlling. And so they it's it feels like home when they meet somebody who's controlling like that. Uh, that happens in families where they're really strictly religious and their whole life has been dictated by the religion and by their parents. And they go out in the world and often find somebody who's going to take over that controlling role. Yeah. And so there's, there's self-understanding that's necessary. And then, um, what are some of the other big pieces of self-forgiveness? I know I've read uh, where you've mentioned writing a letter to yourself as a practice. What are some other practices? Well, self-understanding leads to self-compassion. And self-compassion mm -hmm. is really the antidote to shame. Um, Kristen Neff was the first person who did research on self-compassion and sure. wrote a book about it. And uh, it, it was, it's just life-changing to, to change, to, to stop being self-critical and blaming yourself constantly and always taking the blame when anything goes wrong, uh, to having self-compassion, to really acknowledging your suffering. So many people who are being abused don't even know they're being abused, as we said, but they don't even recognize their own suffering. They don't stop and feel badly for themselves. Um, they'll often say, well, you know, I don't want to have a pity party. I don't want to feel sorry for myself. 
It's not that. It's not that you're having a pity party and it's not that you're excusing your behavior. Uh, not that you're feeling sorry for yourself. You're just stopping to recognize your suffering. Um, you know, when we have compassion for other people, what we do is we put, the, put ourselves in their place. That's the empathy piece. And we feel their suffering. That's what compassion is when we have compassion for others. Self-compassion is just doing the same thing for ourselves, acknowledging our suffering and, you know, really, really feeling it, feeling our suffering and feeling badly for ourselves. Um, so self-compassion is ex extremely important, but self-understanding needs to come first. Um, and you can make self-compassionate statements like, um, this is really hard. Um, you know, I need to end this relationship, but I, I've got to be gentle with myself because I know this is going to be really hard or this is really scary or I'm doing the best I can. Um, you know, I didn't mean to get myself in this mess. Um, you know, but now that I'm in it, I have to kind of lick my wounds and build myself up so that I can leave. But so loving, compassionate statements, acknowledging your suffering and, and building yourself up instead of all that negative self-talk that most of us have, but people who are abused especially have, that self-critical voice, changing that self-critical voice to a more loving, kind voice. Um, and Kristen had suggested that you think about uh, a person in your life who's been loving toward you. Uh, a person in your life who is always kind of gracious and kind to you. Think of that person and then start treating yourself the way that person treated you. Uh, but that's kind of a way to identify how to be self-compassionate. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. And, and so it, it, I imagine it's going to help greatly, too, if there can be somebody, whether it's a therapist or a trusted friend that can give empathy and validation for um, the suffering that the person's going through. Absolutely. Um, people who are being emotionally abused very seldom reach out for therapy. Um, they're afraid to, they're afraid their partner will find out. Um, they're afraid to spend the money um, you know, they, they very seldom do. Uh, but yes, absolutely. If it means after they've left that they try to seek some therapy, uh, they can also call um, domestic violence agencies. Uh, we, all, we usually think of just physical violence, but, but in the last five or so years, domestic violence agencies have included emotional abuse in terms of who they treat. They will actually, if a person needs to come and stay at a shelter, um, domestic violence, most domestic violence shelters will now allow people who are emotionally abused to come to the shelter. Uh, and they often provide counseling or they provide support groups uh, that are with, you know, that are have other people who, been, who are being emotionally abused getting together and sharing information and, you know, hearing each other and validating each other. So there definitely is help. And it is important to get to have somebody else 
understand you and you've used the word validate a lot and validate your experience. Very few people will able to va- be able to validate your experience better than a, a counselor or another victim uh, who would really understand what you've gone through. Sure. And, you know, I'm wondering if you could speak to, to the, the male side of this, like you noted, a lot of the domestic abuse situations are male on female, but it also exists the other way. It just seems like, you know, as a man, it would be especially hard to reach out for help and admit emotional abuse because it's usually not the common pattern associated in our society. Absolutely. And because men are supposed to be big and strong and not allow anybody to abuse them. So there's even more shame involved for a man. Um, a typical pattern for a man is, um, you know, you, we, we overuse the word codependent, um, but very often uh, we know that we think of codependency very often in terms of addiction, like with alcohol, that a codependent partner of an alcoholic is someone who enables the alcoholic to continue drinking because, you know, by their own behavior, they enable them to, they don't really maybe confront them. They allow them to, to act poorly. Um, and, and, and a true codependent is somebody who uh, focuses all their attention on somebody who's got a problem like alcoholism. And in that way, they get to avoid their own problems. Okay. So, um, I'm saying that kind of as a preamble here that a lot of the male um, survivors I've worked with are kind of male codependents. They've gotten involved with a woman who has a lot of problems going in. Um, they probably had a really abusive childhood. Maybe they were sexually abused. And um, the male is very kind and very compassionate. And he feels really badly for this person who's been horribly abused. And he comes to believe that he's going to be able to save her. Okay. So they get married. And what happens very often is because this person was so abused growing up, um, they start attacking their partner verbally and emotionally. Um, And they don't always do it in the same way that male abusers tend to do, although there's some commonalities. There's some, the constant complaining, the never being pleased, maybe making comments in public or in front of other people about, you know, how, you know, something's wrong with him, kind of putting him down all the time. That's a common thing. But another, another thing that happens is that somebody who's been abused as a child we hear about triggers very often, and I think we all know what those are. They, uh, these, the people who are abused growing up often have triggers, and they get triggered by something, a smell, a sound, a behavior, uh, a location, and they're not aware that they're triggered, and they go into um, kind of a PTSD state, uh, and they constantly blame their partner for it. It's always his fault. She gets upset with something like like trust is a big issue. Um, Very often um, female abusers don't trust their partner and they're constantly accusing him of being unfaithful. They want to know where he is constantly because they're afraid that he's cheating on them. 
Um, maybe they had, maybe they were sexually abused growing up, or maybe their father always cheated on their mother and they don't trust men. And so they project that all onto their partner and they never believe him. He'll, he'll swear. I'm not unfaithful to you. I love you. I adore you. Um, and they won't, and the, the, the abuser won't hear them, won't believe them. So there's constant criticism, but also constantly accusing them of things they haven't done. Um, and the, the man continues to believe that he's the only one that can save her. He loves her so much and he has so much compassion for her and he understands why she's the way she is and he will defend her. And if you ever talk about, you know, this is damaging to you, he'll bring up, well, you know, it's not nothing compared to what she went through growing up. So they'll allow themselves to be horribly abused um, with because of this idea that, you know, they're the only one who can understand her there. And they're, and she will be desperately afraid that he's going to leave her. She may have abandonment issues and he will promise. I promise you, I will never leave you. And I won't. So some of these men who are being emotionally abused will put up with horrible behavior just forever. They just won't ever consider walking away or getting a divorce. Uh, so that's a major pattern. There's other types of, you know, patterns, but that's a major one. Yeah, I would think another type of pattern in, in 2021 is, is um, women are, are earning a lot more. Uh, a situation where you might have a house husband or, you know, house husband yeah. and father, a stay-at-home dad and the the woman takes on the traditionally masculine role of providing, but yet being always critical. Yeah, that's a real good one. I'm glad you brought that up. That is very, very common. Um, or just that the woman is making more money than the man and suddenly feels that she has the right to kind of control him. You know, uh, I've also had the experience where the woman is constantly complaining that he's not bringing in more money, um, you know, emasculating him constantly. Like, you know, so-and-so's husband just got a promotion and, you know, what's going on with you? You're, you've got the same salary you've had for the last 10 years, you know? Um, so there's a lot of emasculating going on and it can, it can come around the issue of money for sure. Yeah, and and I would just think that's going to be a really rough trap because you know, I mean that that's so easy to believe. Like maybe it's true that the man is not earning that much money. Maybe he thinks he could earn more money. Like so, it almost ends up seeming like a valid thing. Yeah, yeah, and the same thing can happen with males as does with females. A more passive, and I don't mean I'm not using the word passive in a derogatory way. Just a a quieter person uh, who maybe doesn't have real high self-esteem can be very attracted to a female who's super confident and, you know, successful. I mean, you know, a lot of men can be attracted to that type of person and it can be a setup for, not always, of course, but it can be a setup for, you know, either feeling emasculated or her emasculating him you know, because she's so much more confident and she starts kind of pushing him around and telling him what to do, you know? Um, and I love your, your example of the house husband or the stay at home dad, 
you know, I've seen that pattern a lot. The male actually wanting children more than the female and she has a really good job and he really, you know, campaigned to have children. And so they have children and she says, well, you wanted the children so badly, you take care of them. And he's more than happy to do it. He wants to be there with them. But then that's another, you know, vulnerability he has. Another thing that she can attack and put down is that he's not bringing home any money. He just stays at home. Another real good way to put him down in public. You know, my house husband, all he does is stay home all day, you know, uh, and I'm out here working and making a living, you know, so that can be a real setup too. Yeah, right. And and I guess it's important to mention, mention too, in that setup, it could go well and that could not happen. Like in Absolutely. a healthy, there could be a healthy relationship in that same situation. Absolutely. I mean, it's hard enough for that couple to handle maybe society or cultural, you know, criticism, uh, but they would have to be, you know, really strongly supporting each other. And they would need to be feeling pretty self-confident. But I was just going to say that before you did. Of course, that, that situation can work out beautifully. And we're seeing it working out beautifully, you know, with lots of couples. Um, we're just talking about the potential traps <laughs> that people can get yeah. into. Sure, sure. I want to kind of circle back to one piece you had mentioned, PTSD triggers and um you know, maybe speak, if you could speak a little bit to, um, trauma and the, the force or just the strength of getting triggered at every little thing, you know, I mean, obviously like the typical example is the war vet that comes home and any loud noise he's, he's on edge, but the same thing could happen from trauma, from emotional abuse, you could just start to get triggered at every little thing. Absolutely. Um, You know, it's common for people who grew up with physical or emotional abuse, either experiencing it themselves or witnessing it with their parents um, to be super sensitive to criticism. Okay. So the relationship, you know, can start out with her being sensitive or him being sensitive to criticism Um, but then you've got a combination of somebody who is overly critical, (laughs) then that person is constantly triggered, you know, by the behavior. Um, another trigger, of course, like I mentioned is, is being afraid, not, not being able to trust another person and being triggered if they, if their partner seems to be confident or has gone to a party and is flirting, looks like they're flirting with another person. I mean, the, the triggers can just be endless for somebody who grew up with abuse. Uh, if they grew up being sexually abused, I mean, it's really hard uh, because um, getting into an elevator with a man who's wearing the same aftershave that your abuser wore, um, you know, somebody coming up to you at a party and, and touching your shoulder can be a trigger, you know. Um, watching movies on TV where somebody's being abused can be a trigger. Um, music that reminds you of your past can be a trigger. Lots of things can be a trigger. Um, and when you're triggered very often, um, you don't know, you're, you're catapulted back into the past and you're reliving a past experience 
just like the war veteran, but you don't even know it. You're not aware that you're triggered and you're not aware that you're in the past. You, you think it's happening in the current situation. So like with the, the abused man, he can be accused of being unfaithful when he's not, but she's convinced that he is because she's been triggered and she doesn't know that she's been triggered. So an important thing for anybody who's got a past of being abused is to begin to write a list of your triggers. Self-knowledge here is very important. If you know what your triggers are, like common triggers are a fear of being rejected, a fear of being abandoned, um, difficulty if, if anybody seems to be at least a bit critical. Um, you know, there's some common, common triggers that almost everybody has who's been, you know, abused in some way. So working on your list is wonderful because you can then begin to know what you're triggered by. You can begin to know like the, the war veteran who ducks down on the, on the carpet because a helicopter goes by. If he doesn't know why he did that, he's going to feel horrible about himself. Like what's wrong with me? If he figures out usually through counseling that, that he's triggered because the, the helicopter sounds like the helicopters, you know, in the war, then he's not so self-critical and he's got more self-understanding um, and he also can learn how to manage his triggers, which is a whole other subject. But just starting with making a list of your triggers can be really life-changing. Sure. And, and, I, and I guess it could just be a constant trigger once you weave the relationship, the, the fear of being alone and being alone itself could be a yes. trigger. Yeah. And people who've left, say, an emotionally abusive relationship uh, I advise them to not turn on the radio. Don't turn on the radio in your car when you're driving around because it's very likely that you might hear a song that either reminds you of the good times and then want, you want to suddenly want to go back. You get you get super I mean, you get sympathetic and romantic feelings, and you know suddenly you miss them and you want to go back. Or a song can remind you of a really bad time. You know, when he was beating you or when he was really coming at you really hard. Um, so, you know, they, they, again, there's common triggers like sounds and smells and tastes and touches. Those are all can be all can be triggers. And to really know yourself is is really helpful. And that comes as part of self-understanding, of course. I'm I'm curious um, offhand about what's your opinion or your experience with EMDR as a way to uh, heal some of the trauma. I think it's excellent. Um, you just have to be careful that you have somebody who's really been seriously trained. There's different levels that people go through and they get certified for each level. So I think there's three levels. I'm not an expert in that. Um, but, um, you know, if somebody's actually completed the training and they're actually certified, then I would think it was great. But there's a lot of people who say they practice EMDR. They have kind of a menu, you know, when like when you go to a, get a massage or you go to a spa, there's a menu, you know, you can get this kind of massage, you can get that kind of massage. Well, some therapists do that. They have kind of a menu. I can work with you this way. I know EMDR. I don't, I know somatic therapy. I can, you know, I'm 
when I hear about that, I really encourage the person to not go to that person, okay? You need to go to somebody who's a trauma specialist and who's been trained in EMDR and who's certified. If they're only certified for level one, that's okay. But just know you've got a beginner. There's three levels at least. If you get to somebody that's the third level, that's great, okay? So I really strongly advocate for uh, EMDR. I've had some myself for some troublesome areas of shame, and that were, it was really super helpful. Um, and if you can afford it and you can find somebody who's actually certified, I absolutely encourage it. Okay. Okay. That's good to hear and good to know. Um, I guess, you know, as we wrap things up, are there any major pieces maybe that you feel left out about all of this and self-forgiveness that you might want to mention? Just that people who've been victimized usually continue to blame themselves and usually feel like they have a whole lot to forgive themselves for whether they can do it or not. Um, and interestingly enough, the people who are the abusers very, very seldom talk about self-forgiveness, okay? They don't have to forgive themselves because they didn't do anything wrong, okay, in their mind. Right, right. Okay? It's the people who've really been abused who work on self-forgiveness because they have a list in their mind of all the things that they did that were wrong and all the regrets they have. So just know that, that if you've been abused, you probably, you know, are overly focused on all the things that you've done wrong. And that's, yes, that's all the more reason to forgive yourself. But put it in perspective. You had good reasons for doing what you did. You wouldn't have chosen this if some certain things hadn't happened in your life. You wouldn't have stayed in the relationship if certain things hadn't happened in your life. And that you're far you're a far better person than you probably ever see yourself as. You're not as bad as you think you are. That sounds great. That sounds fantastic. And um, it's been a great conversation. Just very much enjoyed talking to you, Beverly. Well, thank you. I, I do have a book that's currently out called Escaping Emotional Abuse. And um, I have a whole chapter on self-forgiveness. So um, there are resources out there too. Sure. And to find out more about you, um, do you have a website that listeners could go to? Yes. Uh, com. Great. And that's and also my email, beverly at beverlyengel.com. Okay. And your books are available on Amazon as well. Yes. Yes. Well, fantastic. It's been a pleasure talking. Well, it's been a pleasure. You're a great interviewer. Uh, thanks. Take care. Okay. okay. Mm -hmm.